This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's greatest engineering marvel might sound something like this. That's a soda can, and and it really is a miracle. It's a paper-thin wall of aluminum, keeps, say, Coke pressurized across different climates and temperatures. The can is super simple to open, and the metal doesn't add a taste to the drink. Our guest, Jonathan Waldman, says there's something even more amazing going on here. Delicious but acidic beverages don't corrode through cans. Waldman's the author of Rust, The Longest War. The book documents man's long battle against corrosion, and it's a finalist for the Colorado Book Award. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So when it comes to great products of Colorado, I, I tend to think about beer, not the cans that they come in. Uh, but your book has a whole chapter on cans reported from right here in Colorado. So why do some see this state as the can capital of the world? Good question. Um, I, too, think of the beer more than I think of the cans. Right. But as it happens, right up the road in Broomfield is not just the country's largest can maker, but the world's largest can maker and Colorado's fifth biggest company. Huh. And that is the Ball Corporation, as uh, as you read about in the book. Um, as to this claim that the can is one of the world's greatest engineering marvels, it, it sounds like you got that from some sort of you know can engineer. I mean, it, it's just a can. What is so special about this? It's just a can, but it's got to be made with tolerances tighter than almost anything you'll find on a rocket ship. Um, I talked to one of the uh, managers at the at Ball's plant in Golden, Colorado, and he was telling me he used to work in aerospace and that the tolerances on, say, the aperture, which is the part that breaks when you open a can, those, tolerance ha- has, those tolerances have to be within a few millionths of an inch. And they have to make something like 40 billion of them a year. And everyone has to be just right. Otherwise, the can explodes or won't open. Yeah. And, and so let's say you look at a Sprite can. Uh, there's a cursive ball logo uh, on the side. Isn't that the same logo you see all the time in glass mason jars? It is. Uh, ball got their start making glass jars. Actually, the, the Ball brothers who started the company in the 19th century, they were really into containers. First, they started trying to store eggs. They tried to um, – I think they tried a couple other containers before they figured out glass jars were the way to go. Uh-huh. Uh, believe it or not, Ball um, – Ball was having trouble in the 80s with glass and they sold off the jars. They don't make the jars anymore. Oh. Um, but they licensed them to another company and then they got into cans. Um, and since then, their stock has pretty much rivaled DuPont and American Express. And so very large in terms of the companies and the size and the money that they're making on these Absolutely. Cans. And they make satellites too, but the money is not in satellites. The money is in cans. And, and so let's just get a, get a size of, of the industry. How many aluminum cans are made in each and every year? Can, can you give me that? Sure. So the world goes through about 200 billion cans a year, which is enough to make 55 towers to the moon huh. if you could stack them all up. The ball plant in Golden alone makes 6 million a day, which would fill up a tractor trailer every 22 minutes, which is what they do. I mean, I so often drink from these things. I, I take it for granted that, that these aluminum cans don't corrode. Why to you is that so incredible? So I figured there must be something they're doing. I didn't know what cans, how cans keep the acidic stuff on the inside from touching the metal. But because I'd already written about like the Statue of Liberty and the Alaska Pipeline and the U.S. Navy, I figured there's got to be – this thing's made of metal. There's got to be something they do. So I actually called up um, Ball and I tried to talk. I said, is there a a corrosion guy? Is there someone there? And I got the runaround because I was asking terribly dumb questions. And I found out that they have what's called a packaging services lab, which is run by a guy named Ed LaPearl who started it 30 years ago. Okay. And they study the corrosivity of beverages that they're going to put in cans. 
explain how that works. <laughs> <laughs> so it was news to me too. So if you started, say, like a new energy drink company mm-hmm. and you wanted to buy 10 million cans to put your stuff in it, you'd call up Ball and they'd say, send us some of your stuff. We want to test it, see how corrosive it is because they don't want their cans to suffer some terrible fate at the hands of your new beverage. So they do a couple tests that they learned how to do 30 years ago and they um, they study the pitting potential of your beverage and they plug that into a formula um, involving the salts and the dyes and the acidity of your drink and they figure out how corrosive it is and how corrosive it is determines how much of a plastic coating they have to put on the inside of the cans. So what happens if a can actually corrodes? Is it just going to you know, ruin the taste of the drink? It would ruin the taste of the drink, but it would also present a really big threat to anyone in the business. If one can corrodes, say, like on the top of a stack of pallets in a warehouse, uh, now you have this corrosive stuff leaking all over the other cans. And I talked to a guy at Ball who said he's seen millions of cases of cans as a complete write-off because of this. So cans want to corrode from the inside out. And if they do, then cans start corroding from the outside in. And if you're in the business, you don't want to lose cans that way. So it seems just a simply industrial thing. Is there any risk to the public of a can, let's say, corroding? Um, Every once in a while, cans will explode. Really? And if you look up up cases on the – I think it's the Consumer Product Safety Commission's website. You can – there's a really great one of a – I think a, a guy was driving a minivan and his kid was holding a can and it just exploded and the dad freaked out and drove into a guardrail. <laughs> well, that's not good. So, of course, you don't want that to happen. So thus you have these uh, – this, this guy kind of testing the corrosiveness of these drinks. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a, a chance that a drink could be too corrosive to go into a can? Yeah. So apparently one out of seven times, um, Ball will tell a small energy drink company that their stuff is – sorry – too corrosive. We can't put it in a can. There's nothing we can do. You need to change your formula. Because it will corrode the can, but it goes into my body or someone's body. That's interesting to me. Yeah, which gives you faith in your stomach, right? <laughs> right. So I, I, I want to, before we take a break here, talk a little bit about the fact that you, your obsession, can I call it an obsession with cans? Yeah, sure. Uh, what, what drove you to do this? You write the book Rust, mm-hmm. right? And you talk about rust and things like that. So why turn to cans? I was looking at pretty big things. A lot of the world is made of metal. Uh, The Statue of Liberty, in a way, was the smallest thing I looked at until I looked at cans. And I like stories that are hidden in plain sight. Um, I have read a lot about the Ball Corporation, but never just about the can. And I found it was sort of – I mean, I think I wrote 70 pages about the aluminum can. And that's, that's a whole chapter. That's not to say, oh, it's boring. It's 70 ridiculous pages. But it's – there's a lot there. And I probably – um, I mean, I FOIA, I was getting Freedom of Information Act documents and there was there was tons more to do and um, had to sort of stop when it was digestible. Well, well, let's take a break. I'm speaking with Jonathan Waldman, author of the book Rust, The Longest War. When we come back, how Waldman got kicked out of can school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Jonathan Waldman is the author of the book Rust, The Longest War, and we're talking aluminum cans, something he calls an engineering marvel. Uh, So clarify something for me. Your book is called Rust, but you keep saying that aluminum cans corrode. What's the difference here? So it's like a science journalism trick, really. (laughs) I mean, it's it's corrosion. I'm just using shorthand rust. Got it. Got Some it. people picked on me for that. I'm, I'm cool with it. <laughs> in the book, you went and toured the ball uh, can factory in Golden. And there are a long series of machines that press out the cans and paint them and stack them. What step uh, keeps the can from corroding? 
So it's a 20-step process to take a giant coil of aluminum sheet that looks like a huge silver roll of toilet paper uh-huh. that weighs 3,000 pounds and turn it into a can. Uh, and number 12 is where they apply the internal coatings through these spray machines that, as it happens, are also made here in Colorado. And, and so what's so special about this co- this coating? It, it, in your book, you talk about how that lining is the final achievement of many engineers over many years. Yep. Why is it important? So that's the stuff that protects something as acidic and corrosive as Mountain Dew from touching the can. And it's got to be sticky. It's got to be the right viscosity. It it can't uh, break down over time when you shake it, when you crumple the can, if you squeeze too hard, if you ship it on a train. um, It can't can't vibrate loose or something. It's got to be able to cure pretty quickly in an oven. Um, and it's got to work every time you do it. And they actually make cans at about 2,000 a minute. So they're applying these things with seven different machines, and they use strobe lights to make sure there's not even a pinhole in one of them. So, so when was this coating technology developed? So epoxies probably go back to, I'd say, the 40s or 50s. Uh-huh. And, and so they've been putting food in, in cans before this coating. What happened without the coating? <laughs> so early cans were kind of amazing because they were so – um, rugged and different from what we have today. Some of the first cans ever used were like a quarter of an inch thick and there was no way to open the can, but you were just psyched that you had food in a can. So you'd be out there and you'd like smash your can open with a rock or a hammer or a gun. Like whatever you had, you'd be like, get me inside this container. And it, it took a while before the church key was invented or before the aperture that you can just hit with a, you know, you go and open it up. What we heard in the beginning of the, right. of the show. Yeah. Right. And so the the cans kept getting thinner and thinner as this coating was developed. Is that correct? Yeah. And they were using um, – people were using pitch, pine pitch or um, uh, I think it's called brewer's pitch. They were using um, tin-coated steel. The problem was that different foods and vegetables and drinks react differently with tin and sometimes it turns uh, – it makes bever- foods taste wrong and – as it turns out now, there's something like 10,000 different coatings for every single food and beverage out there. Uh, and what I, one of the things I like is that actually rhubarb is one of the most acidic things, probably the most acidic thing and the hardest to put in a can. And it requires more of a coating than anything else out there and still boasts a shorter shelf life than anything else. I, I want to talk about you – know, we, we, we see in Colorado all of these craft beer companies and breweries uh, moving to cans. Is that because these cans have now reached a point of, of success in terms of not corroding and, and, and being a positive you know, use for them? You know, I wish it were that way but it's not like cans of cores were corroding more than other cans were back in the 50s and oh, 60s. Um, it's actually that we are cool – with cans now. Uh, Oscar Blues was one of the first little breweries to start with cans. And uh, at first everyone said, what? I thought like only Swill comes in a can. And they said, no, you can put good beer in a can too. And I think people in the industry have figured out that like, it, you know, we're, we're okay with those containers and they're probably more reliable and keep the beer tasting better than other containers do. And I read a lot about this, uh, that you didn't learn from a book or any discussion about cans. You went to this can school that yeah. Ball puts on for its employees and its investors, but had some trouble getting into the class roster. Talk about that. So as I mentioned before, I wanted to look at cans and figured they must have someone who studies corrosion. Yeah. So I went and visited the corrosion lab at Ball And then I started calling Ball with questions, which is basically the job of a journalist. And some of my questions got to do with exploding cans and with the coating that they use because the coating has – it's primarily BPA. Okay. And I started asking a couple too many questions and then they emailed me two weeks before can school was to start. And they said, under no circumstances can you come to can school. Journalists are not invited. You're not not coming. Sorry. 
And then I, I was devastated because this is my job. And a day later, I got an email from another guy at Ball saying, thanks for signing up. We'll see you. The, you know, clothing is business casual. Don't wear open-toed shoes and, you know, see you So you were in. You were in. Oh, yeah. I went. And I, I was pretty nervous at the security desk at the front and they apologized for not having my name on the list. But I gave him my driver's license and I, I said, I'm here for can school. And they drew a pull a tag and gave it to me and then I went in. Two days into the course, someone pulled me aside and said, what are you doing here? And I said, you invited me. I got an email from you. I thought you meant to change your mind or something. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'll admit I'm a little bit of a troublemaker, but... So, um, so was the sticking point then the, the fact that you asked these questions about what was in the coding? And I read that the, that's a pretty proprietary secret. What's in this this coding? Right. The formula itself is is proprietary. The the And the sticky part of it is that 80% of this coding, and we go through, America goes through 20 million gallons of coding a year. Uh, it's BPA. It's the stuff that moms are nervous about in baby bottles. And it's the stuff that you name the federal health agency and they're concerned about it. It's probably the most studied chemical in America right now. And, and is it clear that the BPA in the can lining is getting into our beverages or into us? So it is, but it's really touchy because anything that touches foods and beverages has to be uh, approved by the FDA. And the FDA has chemical companies submit these 100-page reports that go through all the toxicology and the chemistry. The crux of it is that if anything comes out of the coating at less than half a part per billion in concentration, the FDA is like, that's cool. We're good with that. They don't, they don't have to study it on mice. They don't have to mutagenicity or carcinogenicity tests. So whatever is coming out of these coatings in such small quantities, they say that's okay. The problem is that endocrinologists now say that BPA could have an effect on us at something like 1,000 to 10,000 times lower concentrations. So is it just the, let's say, a high, highly corrosive energy drink would have possibly more BPA or, or is it across the board in a sense? Absolutely. The more corrosive the beverage, the more coating is on the can. And actually the can industry talks about coating levels of A, B, and C. So something like beer is only an A because beer is really mild and actually has some proteins that um, – Break down oxygen so that. So knowing this now, do you still drink out of cans? I drink beer out of cans, but but not soda. I, I haven't consumed soda for a long time, but I do tell a lot of people that if I were uh, if I were about to bear children, I would not be drinking anything out of a can. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Boulder author Jonathan Waldman wrote Rust, The Longest War. It's up for a Colorado Book Award and looks at man's long fight against corrosion on ships, pipelines, the Statue of Liberty, not to mention aluminum cans. Just ahead, how implicit bias is driving school suspensions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. A suspension in kindergarten was the first of many for Rosemary Allen. She went to public school in L.A., and she says she struggled to understand why things like going into the boys' restroom or taking apart dolls got her into trouble. Now she's a professor of early childhood education at Metropolitan State University of Denver, and she's particularly interested in kids who act out in preschool. Chalkbeat Colorado interviewed her earlier this year on the topic. Allen says there has to be a whole new model for how kids are disciplined. She spoke with my colleague, Andrew Dukakis. You were five when you first got suspended. That was for pushing a boy in your school who insulted your mother. Did you understand why you were being punished? I did not. I didn't understand why I was being punished. And no one actually talked about, about it with me. Um, I was sent home 
until to stay at home for a day or two before I was allowed to come back. And you say your teachers described you as disruptive and defiant. How did it feel to, uh, you know, hear that about yourself? You know, I, I didn't understand it. I was a very curious child who liked to explore and experiment, and I was encouraged to do that by my parents. So when I went to school, I didn't understand why the behaviors that were encouraged at home were discouraged at school and why I got in trouble for them. I didn't understand what the problem was. You were suspended dozens of times as a kid and expelled from three schools. What was it like to return to school after being suspended and come back and see your teachers? You know, I loved school so much, and I was considered a pretty bright child. And um, and as every child, I really wanted the approval of my teachers. So when I came back, I wanted to be good, and I tried to be good, but I didn't know exactly what I was doing that was causing so much trouble. So there was a disconnect, and I just didn't understand it. What's the earliest you see students being suspended? Andrea, if you can believe it, it's 17 months. Really? Children are kicked out of early childhood programs before they even turn two years old. And how do you think these suspensions, expulsions, uh, early on affect a child long term? Well, we know and research proves that students who are suspended and expelled from school, they begin to disengage from the education process. They're more likely to enter into the juvenile justice system. They are have a higher risk of dropping out. And um, their academic, academic achievement is um, influenced in a negative way. We should say you're black, and part of your interest in preschool discipline has to do with what's called implicit bias. And we'll talk in a bit about how your childhood experiences play into what you do. But first, explain what implicit bias is. Um, Implicit bias is an unconscious bias that we all have, and it's triggered um, in our in, during a mental process that influences the way that we perceive others based on race, appearance, age. Um, it's something we all have, and it's something that can also be reduced by applying research-based strategies. And what role does it play in school discipline and how that uh, transpires? Well, what happens, because it's an unconscious process, um, two children can be engaging in the same behaviors. And implicit bias will allow you to um, rely on stereotypes Mm -hmm. to influence decision-making. So if two children are engaged in the same behaviors and one is black or Hispanic and one is white, then you really see and you're more aware of the behaviors that you expect to see because of the black um, the stereotypes associated with black children. So what happens, we see this disproportionate number of children of color who are then suspended and expelled from schools. Black children make up only 18% of the preschool population, but comprise 42% of preschool suspensions the first time and nearly half of those preschoolers who are suspended a second time. It sounds like teachers might have sort of a cultural disconnect with students sometimes. Uh, Sometimes they do. And that's what happened in my situation. Again, the behavioral expectations from home 
were different from those at school. The teachers were not aware of the goals that my parents had for me to really explore and discover and be curious. So when I came to school and engaged in those behaviors, the teachers saw them as disruptive. They saw me as being out of control. And um, when I challenged some processes, they saw me as being defiant. Now, you went to an all-black school. Um, Were your teachers mainly white? They were. I was amongst the first generation of students um, who entered into school following the Brown versus Board of Education decision. You say you hit a breaking point as a kid. You didn't want to be the kid who got in trouble all the time, so you got a fresh start in a high school. And it was the first integrated school you went to. And you say you felt kind of invisible there. Um, I did. And, and it was um, a two-pronged process for me. One, they didn't know my background after so much trouble all the way through elementary and junior high. It was called junior high back then. But when I went to the new high school, they didn't know my background, so I had a fresh start. But I was not prepared for the invisibility that I experienced, where teachers really didn't see me, like I was more like part of the furniture. MSU Denver Early Childhood Education Professor Rosemarie Allen. She's been speaking with Andrew Dukakis. When we come back, how Professor Allen teaches her students about implicit bias by taking them into the field. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's rejoin our conversation from earlier this year with MSU Denver Professor of Early Childhood Education, Rosemary Allen. She says there must be a whole new model for how kids are disciplined in schools. She spoke to CPR's Andrew Dukakis. You have a particular way of teaching your students about implicit bias, and you start with an experiment in the field. Um, How does that work? Um, One of the things that we do is we talk about implicit bias, and we talk about how it develops and the fact that everyone has it. And then we give the students real-life experiences. So right after that lecture, we take a trip to Five Points. And I choose Five Points because of the negative stereotypes associated with it. And when they go, they are instructed to recognize their biases as they pop up. By this time, we've created a safe environment, and they feel very comfortable sharing their biases. And part of that is because I make myself vulnerable, and I share my own biases and my own experiences. What are your own biases? Um, well, I can I can share a couple of things, and they happen all the time. Um, my son goes to Howard University. He wanted to live off campus. I went by to check out the apartment, and I pulled up, and there was an African-American male standing on the porch um, with his pants down a little low. And a white T-shirt on. And my first thought, ashamedly, was that, oh, this is a dangerous place. I don't know if I want my son to be there. I tell my students, aware is halfway there. So in a way, you can have a bias against your your own race. Oh, my goodness gracious. We're all influenced by this. No one escapes. We live in America. And there's lots of stereotypes that um, prevail here. We have to be aware of them. Um, I said I was ashamed of that because this is an African-American. My son and my husband are African-American males. But catching yourself, Mm. aware is halfway there and saying, what am I doing? When I stepped out of the car and asked... Are you a Howard student? It turned out that he was in the medical school there. But that's how implicit bias works. And um, there's this idea that um, 
you know, you would want to create a policy where suspension is used only as a last resort and that it should be determined by a third party. How would that work? Well, one thing we have to understand is that teachers go into this field because they have a vested interest in improving the lives of children. And because so many of us are not aware of our biases, we may not be aware of how biases impact the decision to suspend. The studies show that suspension is actually an ineffective intervention. Mm. It does not work. Mm. And children who are suspended one time are at risk of being suspended again. So if a suspension is necessary, it should be first reviewed by a third party. Teachers should have the support they need to address the challenging behaviors. And then the third party who is not emotionally involved can then make a more objective decision about it. Some might say, you know, behavior is behavior, and even taking into account cultural factors, kid needs, kids need to follow rules. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I agree to an extent, but it, de- it depends on who determines the rules. Who had the right to say what I was supportive for at home was not allowed in a school? When do we begin to take children's culture, their cultural behaviors and norms and expectations into consideration in helping their cultural way of being inform the teaching and learning process? What if a teacher has a child who's just very disruptive, maybe even negatively impacting other students? What kind of a support could you offer those teachers to make it better for everyone? Oh, my goodness. The um, the need to address the behaviors teachers find challenging in the classroom is one of the number one requests of teachers. Mm-hmm. They want help. And there are programs such as the Pyramid Model, which is a multi-tiered system of support that helps to promote positive behaviors, address and prevent challenging behaviors. And for those children who end up at the very top of the pyramid where they need more individualized support, then they get that support so that they can learn to replace those challenging behaviors with more appropriate and more widely accepted skills. I imagine this could be very taxing, though, for the teachers. Um, It can be, but teachers are finding that when they have the skills they need to first prevent those behaviors from occurring, at the bottom of that pyramid model I talked about, about 75 to 80% of the children's needs are met there. And then they move up. By the time you get to the top of the pyramid where those challenging behaviors persist, it's only like 5% of the students who are there. I wonder, you've taught students in the past, younger students. As a teacher, did you ever have to suspend a student? Oh, you know, because I had gone through that, it was my personal tenant to never, ever suspend or expel a child. I did get to a point, actually in 1998, where I was faced with expelling a child from the preschool program. Um, um, I had parents withdraw their children, and I had teachers threaten to quit. And I actually promised my teachers that that Friday, on a Wednesday, I promised them that I would inform the parent. I didn't sleep for two days. Mm. And finally... Because I was desperate for help, I called the Aurora Mental Health Center, and they sent over an early childhood consultant who not only helped me in handling the child, but everyone benefited because we learned some other additional skills that we didn't have at the time. Rosemarie Allen is a professor of early childhood education at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Her research focuses on racial and gender disparities in preschool discipline. Chalkbeat Colorado recently interviewed her on the topic. She spoke with my colleague, Andrew Dukakis. (laughs) 
And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to everyone who gave to Colorado Public Radio this hour. If you've not yet done so, take two minutes right now and support Colorado Matters and all of the reporting you hear each and every day on Colorado Public Radio News. The number, 1-800-496-1530 or head online to CPR.org. I'm Nathan Heppel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.